Hello, Kate. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I am well as well. It is 2018. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. This is episode 19 of the Kate and Vince Gelsa podcast. And our first in uh, the new year. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, iTunes is now organizing when you go to all, you know, you go to the podcast and then you go to all available episodes. It now has them organized by year. And so I can see. Oh, really? By year, the diminishing numbers of how many we've. Oh, so when well, 2018, we can get our our act our act together, get our rears and gears. Okay, when we did, did three last year, is what I'm telling you. Yeah, well, last year was a troubling year. Last year was rough. You know, we had uh, we had weird things happening in the country that yeah. th- that threw us into uh, a loop. It was and, a lot. Uh, you know, yeah, it was a lot. Exactly. Exactly. Three is, uh, we should be proud of three. Yeah. Three is not nothing. We accomplished, we accomplished something. And then yeah. th- this year, who knows? Maybe we'll do um, more. Maybe we'll do less. I don't know. Yeah. But when, uh, when, when last we were together, uh, I guess I had finally gotten to my first stay at WNEWFM. Uh, For those people who haven't heard the earlier episodes, one of the reasons why we're doing this, Kate and I, is uh, because Kate sort of thought it would be fun for she and I to examine my my career in radio after uh, I resigned. Um, in uh, uh, 2015, I I retired, not resigned, but I I retired. I stopped doing radio. She, um, well, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but you've always been interested in how I maneuvered and how I uh, got from one place to another and did one thing and another. And that's been the main impetus for this podcast is... uh, kind of uh, providing a bit of an oral history that because I spent so many years on the radio in New York um, also becomes uh, an oral history not just of of my career but of radio in New York from yeah. from the late 60s. Yeah. So, because uh, um, sometimes I feel like a little weird that, you know, I'm talking about myself all the time, you know, and, and, uh, well, but every, I mean, every phase of your career involved all of these other legendary people who are, I think it's important that people don't forget about them either, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So I, I think that, um, it's, you're not just talking about you, you're talking about, all these other people, and and you'll tell us about some more of them today. Because yeah. the NEW period is there's a lot of good stories, so we're gonna cover what we can, what we can, what you feel like talking about. We'll do a few few of them today. Um, there were some good characters around. We talked about Allison Steele yeah. a lot last time, and we talked a little bit about Scott Muni, who was yep. uh, the program director at WNEW FM back in the. From the late 60s through the 70s into the 80s. Um, and he was the guy who brought me there, who hired me. We talked about that in uh, the, the last uh, podcast about how 
I got to NEW through the recommendation um, by, by Dave Herman, who I had worked with at WPLJ in the very early 70s. So uh, we were in 1973. Dave had gone from PLJ to NEW, um, was doing the morning show there. And uh, uh, Dave recommended me to Scott as uh, a kind of a fill-in person. And gradually, over the course of a couple of months, I went from fill-in to being hired as a regular part-timer. Um, they began to give me regular overnight shows. And I finally wound up with a, a schedule, which I've mentioned before, which was kind of a gonzo-like schedule that started on Friday morning at 10 o'clock. I would do the show that normally during the week Pete Fornatel did. I had a dream, Kate. I, mm -hmm. I had my radio dream a couple of nights ago, and for the first time, Pete was in the dream. A, a lot of these people come to me I dream about them all the time. I mean, you know, you're, yeah. ta you're talking about legendary figures. They, all these years later, still appear in my dreams. And I have, mm -hmm. this, I have this radio dream where I'm at a new station where there's a lot of environmental difficulties. Nothing quite works right, and I don't know <laughs> how to work it, even if it does work right. And there's, like, antagonistic people present but usually some of the NEW people show up in this dream. And the other night, it, it, when, when I had the dream, Scott was there and Dave Herman was there. And my non-radio college roommate, David Diggs, was, was in the dream. It was like, Diggs, uh -huh. yo, whoa, man, hey, how are you? Come here. You know, it's like, it's like, you know, the dreams are so real that it's like I'm really visiting with these people. Yeah. And suddenly Pete was there. And Pete was going to come back and do a show following my show. But he sat in the corner and just was like shaking his head. And I could see how he doesn't know what he's gotten himself into. This is not the radio station that he recognized. It was as alien to him as it was to me. And I went over to him. And in the dream, I'm not aware at all that he died. Right. You know, a few years ago, in real life, in reality, Pete Fornatel is no longer with us. Um, but I'm not aware of that in the dream. I just go over to him, and Pete and I had, we had a kind of a strange relationship over the course of several decades, where sometimes we were close, but other times we were kind of like friendly antagonists, and uh, I'll get into more of that at, at, at some future point. But in the dream, I, I went over to him and I gave him a big hug. And I said to him, uh, don't, don't worry, Pete. It's okay. I, I talked to Scott about it. And Scott knows <laughs> about all this crap. And he's going to take care of it. And Pete was like, oh, man, okay. And I guess I must have been, this, I had this dream Friday or Saturday, and we were supposed to record on Sunday. So it must have been in, in anticipation of my beginning to think about talking about all of these people. That must have been why I, I had the dream. And, yeah. uh, 
He wanted to visit to get his, yeah, to get a I, word in. I guess. Yeah, I guess he wanted to make sure that <laughs> that I didn't forget. Yeah, to you talk mentioned about him. him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he wanted to make sure you didn't forget him. Right. So that's good. I like that. I I got the gig as Pete's Friday substitute because they all worked originally when they when they started at NEWFM in 1960 late 67 I think or early 68 somewhere in there they were actually working 6 days a week a lot of them they'd work Monday through Friday and then they'd have a weekend show either on a Saturday or a Sunday the full-time people but that was becoming much too much to do so by the time I got there in 73, they were cutting back on one of the shows. So Pete chose to cut back on uh, his Friday show, the Monday through Friday, the Friday portion of that Monday through Friday schedule, because he was on on Saturdays. I think he was on Saturday afternoon. Anyhow, the point is I got that show, 10 to 2. And then they gave me a Saturday afternoon show that was also 10 to 2 and then I got an overnight show that was like Monday overnight into Tuesday and then I got the Sunday overnight into Monday which was a very long show because it started at um, it started at midnight and it went from midnight to 6 a.m. normally the schedule was 6 to 10 10 to 2 2 to 6, 6 to 10, 10 to 2. It ran in those four-hour uh, increments. But on Sunday, because there were some different shows on Sunday morning, the schedule was more of an 8 to 12, 12 to 4, 4 to 8, 8 to 12 schedule. So the, right. the overnight show started at 12, and rather than have somebody just do a show for two hours and then bring a typical overnight show in at 2... They gave me the entire six-hour block. So by the time I got the Sunday morning show as well, which was uh, uh, because Jonathan Schwartz had been, um, he, he had been touting me on how important Sunday morning is because he was doing his Sinatra-type show on WNEW AM on Sunday mornings. He kept telling me, you know, try to get Sunday morning because... Because that's when they're really listening. I mean, they're really listening. They're not doing other things. They're listening, and you can really get through to them on Sunday mornings. So I kind of right. lobbied for that show, and I got it. So by 74, 75, I was working a full-time schedule, five shows a week. But it was on Friday, Saturday, Sunday and Monday into Tuesday morning. So, so I was like oh doing this, this gonzo thing in like basically three days. I was working five shows. And uh, the, the, the difficult one, but the one that was the most fun was Sunday because I would be on 8 to 12 in the morning. Um, it would take me a while to get home. I'd be home by maybe 1.30, 2 o'clock. And then I would try to get, a full night's sleep during the afternoon on Sunday. I would usually manage to sleep maybe four hours at most. 
Oh, and yeah. I, and I'd be up Sunday night, and then at ten o'clock, I'd I'd get in the car and drive back into the city, and do this late night Gonzo show. Now, of course, in those days, I had the energy. I wasn't qu- quite thirty years old yet. I was still in my twenties, and I could do that. And there was something that was very energizing and fun about that schedule, especially the Sunday part of it. You know, I'd leave on Sunday morning, it'd be just before noon, and I'd say, well, I'll see you guys tonight at midnight. And it was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> You'll be back in, in midnight? Yeah, Pete Fornatel was part of, um, he was part of the younger generation. Now, there were there were two age groups at NEW when I got there. There were, there was Scott Muni, Allison Steele, Jonathan Schwartz, Dave Herman, um, Zachary, of course, had left. All of these people were a good 10 to, in some cases, 15 years older than the second generation, the new guys. The new guys were Pete Fornatel, Dennis Elsis, Richard Neer, Meg Griffin. Uh, there were a couple of other people who did like uh, um, you know part-time stuff. I, I can't remember everybody's name. Um, yeah. and, and we were we were like the, the young Turks. We were the new kids. But interestingly enough, some of the older people were were much more radical than some of the younger people were. Some of the younger huh. people were much more traditional and conservative. And that's where the problems that came about with with Pete um, occurred, because Pete was a real traditionalist. He believed in a certain kind of radio that was conducted in a certain way, and that certain music was what was meant to be the music on that radio. And he wasn't necessarily as open to discovering new things as I and Meg and Tom Herrera is another one. You know, some of the people in that younger generation. Dennis Elsis was, like Pete, a bit more conservative. Richard Neer was sort of in between. But it was interesting that you know Scott sometimes was was more far out than anybody, yeah. You know, and yet he was, uh, like I said, a good fifteen years older than than the rest of us. So Pete and I would often we and we would talk about it over the course of many years and working at different radio stations, which we would find ourselves doing. We would talk about the fact that we both had the same basic love for this kind of personality-driven, free-form, music-oriented radio, but we had um, an aspect of... uh, We had an argument about how far you could go with it and what you could do with it. And and that always tempered our our relationship. And I just... I, I found that you know it was a hard thing to to deal with cuz we were both basically from from the same background you know italian catholic kids of course now pete went to um 
Fordham University. That's where he got his start in radio doing uh, WFUV and pretty much went from FUV right to NEW in the same way that I went from my college station, FMU, and, right. and went from FMU right into the ABC PLJ thing, which quickly led to NEW. Um, like I said, both Italian Catholics, uh, both rooted in a certain kind of um, borough lifestyle. Pete's borough was the Bronx, and my borough was New Jersey. You know, there's, there's, this, <laughs> sure. there's this aspect of like, you know, Hudson County, Essex County, that portion of New Jersey that really is sort of like a sixth borough of of New York. Sure. And uh, I just I felt bad that when it finally got around to the aughts, Pete and I, even though we were back to back on on. FUV. He was back home at at FUV now. Um, we we didn't see eye to eye. We were back to back, but we didn't see eye to eye. Yeah. Does that make sense? Sure. And uh, I I always felt bad about that. And and you know if you recall when he died, he died very um, uh, unexpectedly. He wasn't. Yeah. He hadn't been sick. He just woke up dead one day. I mean, it's just like yeah. weird. And so. There were things that were unresolved between us, and I think him popping up in this dream that I had the other day mm -hmm. is me finally thinking about how disappointed I I was that it remained unresolved. Yeah. So. Well, it's hard when you do something that's so similar, uh, superficially looks very similar, but has some fundamental differences. Yeah. That's that's always an interesting professional relationship because you would think from the outside it looks almost the same, but but actually the fact that you were close to being the same and then not makes it even harder to really understand each other. <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things that happened with me at NEW, one of the, the sort of stories that... Um, continues to fascinate and feedback is the story of of uh, T-shirt and Razu Kelly. Uh -huh. yeah. Now, T-shirt and Razu Kelly these were these were letters that were sent to me during um a newspaper strike. I would like to read the introduction to the book that we published. Because it gives, because okay. it gives a bit of of the feel um, for what NEW was like and what my life was like there during this period. Because um, okay. I did, I wrote the introduction. We had a we had a book published of the first year's worth of these letters, which were these pun filled letters accompanied by um, cartoons that illustrated the letters or sometimes had separate stories from whatever was going on in the letters. And clearly the writer of the letter was the more normal of the two characters. And, and the character that resembled a little bit, he resembled Frankenstein's monster. He was the, uh -huh. he was the less normal <laughs> of the uh -huh. two. And the the one guy had a name. His name was Razu Kelly, the guy, the the Frankenstein's monster guy. 
Razu Kelly. The other guy didn't have a name, but he always wore a T-shirt. So I began calling him T-shirt, but I'm getting him. And who was, who, wait, who was writing the letters? Okay, I will. Here's, the, the point is, I have no idea who, wrote, who was writing the letters. But everybody. And people to this day think it's you. Yeah. To this right? day, I still get email or, you know, people meet me somewhere and they go, oh, yeah, the Razu Kelly letters, man. That was pretty funny. You really pulled it off, you know, because it was you, right? It was you. No, right. it it wasn't. So here's, <laughs> and 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 what we'll find out here is that I never wanted to know. I wanted them. I enjoyed the fact that I was being fooled, as well as and 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 was being entertained by somebody, as yeah. well as the audience was being fooled and entertained by somebody. So. Right. They, they asked me to do an introduction to the book, and it basically explains how these letters came about. Our okay. t- so, so this is what I wrote. Are T-Shirt and Razu Kelly really real? That's the question that's addressed to me by total strangers and friends alike. Now, I wrote this in, I guess, 1980. Yeah, 1980, November of 1980. Wherever I go, concerts, clubs, schools, in my capacity as Vince Gelsa, WNEW-FM DJ, or just hanging out like a normal person, wandering the supermarket aisles in search of the peanut butter, people come up to me and say, Hey, Vin, about this Razoo guy, is he for real or what? Of course, I quickly reply, Razoo is real. T-shirt is real. I know I won't be, I know I won't be believed. Come on, Vin, you write those letters, don't you? No, T-Shirt writes the letters, I rejoined. See, Razu does most of the stuff, and T-Shirt is kind of like the chronicler. T-Shirt is a bit like Boswell to Johnson. Huh? They usually reply, and then they pause a bit and look me straight in the eye and think they detect a mischievous twinkle and give me a conspiratorial wink and invariably say, oh, yeah, sure, I get it. You don't write the letters. T-shirt writes them. Yeah, sure, I get it. And they wander off, chuckling cynically. Hey, I call out, you got to believe me. That's the truth. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Still wandering off, confident that their suspicions have finally been substantiated by my denial. It's not me. Now, like at this point, Kate, I would be get, I would be coming adamant about it that they weren't believing right. me. It's 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 not me. I'm telling you, really, they exist. They're real. You gotta believe that. It's it's right. It's, but I've lost again. They're gone swallowed up by some rock and roll cloud or off on aisle 10 looking for toilet tissue, leaving me stranded, a voice crying out in the wilderness, bellowing to the embarrassed amazement of innocent passers-by. What's the matter with you? Don't you believe in stuff? Huh? Have you no faith? Don't you believe in Santa Claus? Santa Claus is real. Peter Pan, huh? Come on. Peter Pan can fly, right? I mean, you know that, don't you? You probably doubt the existence of a fairy godmother. Where do you think those quarters come from when a kid loses a tooth? His parents? We're talking about magic here. Don't you believe in magic, huh? T-shirt and Razoo are real. 
I'm not them. And from far off in the crowd, I can hear the faint voice of the skeptic, still chuckling, still muttering, Oh, yeah, sure, Vin, yeah, I get it. And this would drive me crazy, Kate. It would literally drive me crazy. But it also because you, <laughs> it also delighted you wanted them me. To know that you were like you were part of the audience too. Yeah. Like, yeah. You were also you were like them. You were like, no, I also enjoy this. I'm not making it. Right. I'm enjoying it with you. I want to share in being an audience for it with you. Well, well one of the things that I've neglected to point out here now is that I would read the letters. I mean, is that obvious? Yeah, so explain. Well, so start, like, what you, what was the first letter you got? Okay. From them. Because uh, some people might not ever have heard of this. Let's see. I mean, some people who are fans will remember this. Right. But Every Sunday morning, shortly before noon, my radio program on WNEW-FM in New York ceases to be the Vin Skelser Show and becomes... The Continuing Adventures of T-Shirt and Razoo Kelly. The morning dose of rock and roll comes to a halt. A rinky-tink guitar theme, some long-lost Looney Tune cousin, fills the 1027 airspace. I usually groan and moan and procrastinate until I can no longer delay the inevitable, and the ritual begins. Some people go to church on Sunday morning to fulfill their desire for ritual, I read aloud another letter from T-Shirt and Razoo Kelly. <laughs> Radio listeners in three states are prepared for another assault on the language, another far-fetched, pun-filled episode in the lives of rock and roll's very own Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza, Holmes and Watson, the Two Stooges. <laughs> Dear Vince Kelsa. I go into my T-shirt voice and chant the standard salutation in the same way a priest would begin his mass. Weary of the eternal repetition that is ritual's curse, but forever mindful of the powerful forces about to be unleashed. Dear Vince Kelsa, me and Razoo Kelly were, so I would, I would do this sort of voice that was my voice, only it was exaggerated. And it would become T-shirts yeah. voice. It would become the voice of the guys writing the, the, the letter. Right. I received the first letter in October of 1978. The New, okay. York, the, the New York newspaper strike that year had inspired me to institute a, a, a new feature on my Sunday morning show, which was the Bayonne Butch book report. Now, Bayonne Butch was another name that I used. It was my Asbury Jukes nickname, Bayon Butch, right? Right. Uh, Bayon Butch Book Report. I am not T-shirt or Razoo, I wrote, but I do have alter egos who surface on the air, and Bayon Butch is one of them. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to fill a void left by the absence of the New York Times Book Review, a Sunday morning staple for so many. And, of course, this goes back to the 19... 30s or 40s when there was a newspaper strike. I guess it was in the 30s before the war. And in New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, the famous mayor of New York in those days, would um, go on WNYC, which was the city's radio station at the time, 
and would do like a like a an FDR kind of uh, chat, and he took it upon himself to entertain the children in the audience by reading the comics that normally would be like in the Daily News on on Sunday morning. He so, read the comics. Yeah, he read the the comics to the to the kids. Like um, he would describe what was. I, happening in them? Yeah. Yeah, he you know, he wouldn't <laughs> read necessarily all of them, but so so, you know, the that was my yeah. idea was a radio person supplying something and I always, you know, I read a lot. I always talked about books anyhow and I would I would always have to like be wary of spending too much time talking about the books I was reading cuz you know, there would be minutes would go by without music sometimes but if i turned it into a feature and i called it the bayon right. butch book report then it would be okay then i could talk about uh, the latest novel that was driving me crazy uh, for five or ten minutes uh, without uh, right. worrying about it and it was sunday morning which as you remember i said jonathan said you know you can have a much more intimate relationship with the audience and they'll listen they'll really listen to you yeah uh, so yeah i i've i've always talked about books um uh, okay so i decided spontaneously to fill that time by reading aloud an amusing letter i had received that week in the mail the voice i used which was me's voice i began calling me the character t-shirt after i received the first cartoons weeks later so they didn't send the cartoon at first at first it was just a letter um okay and they they were asking me they there were all these references to like bruce springsteen and and why didn't they get the bruce springsteen album that we were giving away um, they had uh -huh. entered the contest and they were waiting, you know, for their album and they never got it. And how come? So, uh, you know, I read this letter and that was that. Well, the following Friday brought another letter in the mail. I read this one on the air on Sunday and wondered aloud if this was going to be a weekly thing. If whoever was writing them wanted to continue the practice, I was game, I said, to continue the public reading. Sure enough... Next week, another letter addressed to Vin Skelsa, DJ. And that's how they were always addressed. Vin Skelsa, the letter D, the letter J. In the by now familiar pigeon scroll, made its appearance in my mailbox. The continuing adventures of T-Shirt and Razu Kelly became a regular feature on my Sunday morning show. At first, I was extremely curious about the authorship of the letters. I must confess that I did not immediately believe in the actual existence of T-Shirt and Razoo, these two guys. I suspected everyone from friends and loved ones playing a good joke to famous writers on Lark. The letters were postmarked either New York City or Stamford, Connecticut. The Stamford letters seemed to coincide with holidays, which led to my most rational theory that the writer of these letters was a student from Connecticut who attended college in New York. But some of these letters were hand-delivered, dropped off surreptitiously at the WNEW reception desk by a mysterious woman described to me by those who had caught a glimpse of her as, quote, a youngish, 
shopping bag lady. This mysterious messenger was the key to the letters and would lead me to the perpetrator, or so I thought. So I set up a watch for her one Friday afternoon when no letter had arrived in the mail. I knew it would be hand-delivered. I enlisted the help of several members of the WNEWFM office staff and set up a scheduled vigil. I was on the air when the alarm was sounded. She's here, cried Darlene into the phone. Darlene has cats named after T-Shirt and Red Zoo and is one of their biggest fans. And I think she, she, was, the, she was one of the secretaries. And I think she lived in, like, West Caldwell. And she's the one who used to see me sometimes in the old uh, supermarket that I went to up on Bloomfield Avenue in, in West Caldwell. I think that's who Darlene oh, yeah. turned out she to be. She just sent you a, a birthday message. Yeah, okay. All right. So she's she's still around, and she still remembers yeah. T-shirt and Razoo. I wonder if yeah. those cats are still... No, the cats couldn't... They wouldn't still be alive. <laughs> Anyhow, there were a lot of pets named after T-shirt and Razoo. I, yeah, I, I was told... Really good pet name. Yeah, I was told that many, many times. So uh, yeah. she's here, Darlene said. Hold her there. Stall her. Tie her up. Anything. Don't let her get away. I put on a long record and ran down the hall to reception, heart pounding, adrenaline pumping past acceptable levels. At last, I would confront the enigma. But reception was empty, save for Kay, the receptionist. Where's Darlene? I hissed. I don't know, Kay fluttered. Kay was like this older woman and she didn't quite get the a the fm guy she was more of an am you know william b williams sinatra kind of lady but she was lovely she was very sweet and pleasant to us but she didn't quite understand us um yeah so Kay said uh uh, first Darlene was here, and, and then she ran into the elevator following a, a very strange-looking creature. My heart sank. How come I get all the weirdos? Kay continued, <laughs> launching into the standard diatribe that is universal among radio station receptionists. And oh yes, she finally concluded, this one left something for you, here. And Kay held up this week's letter. The elevator doors opened. Darlene emerged alone, crestfallen, the brief hint of a tear in her left eye. I tried, Vin. I tried. Darlene spoke in a voice that threatened to disappear at any moment. I really did. I even touched her, but she got away. It was at that moment that I decided I should never know anything more about the origin and authorship of the letters. I was, it was at that point that I made an act of faith. I would believe in T-Shirt and Razoo Kelly. The fact that we came so close to capturing the mysterious messenger, only to have her slip through our grasp, was an omen. I would respect the reality of the boys and be tolerant of their obvious desire for anonymity. The young shopping bag lady turned out to match the description of Razu's mother, Mrs. Kelly, who lives in the subway stations of Manhattan and was the subject of many future letters. <laughs> so, of course, I talked about all of this constantly on the air, and um, uh, this, this 
piece that I wrote then goes on to tell about how the book came together. Uh, can you read a? Will you read yeah, a letter? I can read. I can read the first letter, which was okay. dated 15 November, 1978. And they were handwritten, but they were always legible. They were like print. Uh -huh. They were printed, but I never had much trouble reading them. You know, deciphering them. Right. Dear Vin Skelsa. Me and Razu went down the Jersey Shore a while back, and sure enough, there was the Bruce up to his unshaven chin in anonymity. So we holler, hey, Brucey, waiting for Sandy? But he's acting cool, so he just looked down the beach. So me and Razu goes up to him, and Razu says, wow, he sure is bigger in real life than he is from the upper deck Madison Square Garden. And we says, hey, Brucey, can we have a couple of autographed albums? Figuring he can afford it. But he says, you're mistaken. My name ain't Brucey. <laughs> we figure he was out of the albums and was embarrassed. So we dropped it. And I says, hey, little Scooter, where's the big man? Just like that 10th Avenue Frosty song says. But he just says, buzz off, creeps, or I'll put your lights out. And he holds up this ugly fist with the words Death Wish tattooed right on the knuckles. And I can't remember seeing that on any album cover, so I figure he uses makeup on it for pictures. Anyway, so I figure Bruce and Clarence had a fight. You heard it here first. And I pull Razu away. But he picks up a rock and makes like he's going to throw it at Brucey. But I don't let him because I figure Brucey has enough problems right now. So we went down the boardwalk and Razu threw the rock into Madame Marie's doorway. But he didn't hit anybody or nothing. So then, me and Razu Kelly like your show the best next to Dan Ingram. So could you send us two autographed Brucey albums? We still like him, you know. We already have Born to Run, so send us two of the others. Thank you. Brucey forever. Me and Razu Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> now, that one was... That was the first That was letter? the first letter, yeah. Now, that was relatively tame as far as um, puns were concerned. Let me go... Uh, and it looks like there weren't, there weren't always cartoons. The cartoons came with every three or four letters like here's one where t-shirt is walking along and and razu has um what looks like a a bike tire uh still on the on the on the rim still on the spokes and t-shirt who has kind of long hair and a beard and wears um like aviator shade sunglasses Razu, you, you can tell this from the drawing. From the drawing, yeah. 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 And and Razu is is slightly taller and kind of skinny and his head looks like a combination of Frankenstein's monster meets uh Bart Simpson. You know, it's got he's got like an exaggerated crew cut that looks very spiky. And uh T-shirt is saying to Razu, Razu, what happened to the rest of the bike? And Razu says, what bike? And T-shirt says, the bike that goes with that tire. And Razu says, what tire? Why, the tire in your hand. What hand? 
I thought it best not to pursue the subject further. I was reading the paper to Razu when he says, Hey, why don't you go back and graduate high school so we can get us good jobs? Well, you graduated and that didn't help. Yeah, well, at least I don't have an excuse. Sometimes I think Razu's an intellectual snob. Razu, do you believe in pre-incarnation? What's that, powdered milk? <laughs> pre-incarnation. No, it's a sort of life before death. Nah, that's just superstition. No, no, it's when you die and your spirit leaves your body, and then your spirit looks around for a new body to live in. So, as the letters progressed, there became characters that appeared like um, Razu's, uh, uh, I'm sorry, like T-shirt's mother who lived in the subways somewhere, and, uh, um, you know, like Razu's grandma, who was Grandma Geschunheit. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> she cooked up everything from cranberry sauce to mashed potatoes with gravy. And that was just for breakfast. This is him describing their Christmas at Grandma Geschunheit's house. And her TV's busted, Vin, and she missed all her football games. So me and Razu threw some passes to her in the backyard. See, Razu's been visiting his grandma a lot since she lost Grandpa Razu since she lost Grandpa Razu two years ago in Macy's. <laughs> and that's another thing that would happen is I would crack up reading the the letters because I generally right. I generally did not even look at them until I opened them on the air because I wanted oh, to be. Good. You know, I wanted to be as entertained as the audience. It was a tragic thing because she really liked the old guy. But there they were in the middle of an aisle with a special on slips and girdles was announced. And Grandpa Geschunheit was swept away in a rush. Grandma still checks the lost and found every once in a while. She told us this story of how Grandpa was a German immigrant who stole away on the Titanic. He was cold hiding in the lifeboat, so he stole some clothes that was ladies' clothes, but warm enough because they wore long skirts back then. You heard it here first, which was another saying that the listeners all began to uh, respond to, the you heard it here first thing, which they would always put uh -huh. in, in parentheses. So, uh -huh. he, uh, so he wore them. Then the ship went down for the count, and Grandpa jumped out of the lifeboat to let the ladies and kids take first crack at the canoe race. Because of the clothes he was wearing, they threw him back in the boat, and he ends up on Ellis Island without even getting his pantyhose wet. Personally, I'd have had a hard time believing that story, but it does kind of explain why Grandpa Geschunheit always wore dresses even if his skirts were shorter than back then. Hey, it's a conspiracy, Vin. Now Emery Air Freight stole our Bruce autographed albums. Me and Razu figure you maybe should stop sending them for a couple of weeks anyway, because maybe after the Christmas mail backload is finally delivered, these crooks might have stolen enough stuff to lay off our albums. Well, Vin, it's more relating... Next week, because we're going to spend New Year's Eve with Razu's mother. 
well, Vin, it's more relating next week because we're going to spend New Year's Eve with Razoo's mother. Really, wish us luck. Lifeboats forever, me and Razu Kelly. So <laughs> the, the stories would continue, and they would give us little um, um, flashes of what was coming down the line. And this was every Sunday morning. Now, the, the book that we published <laughs> was the first year of letters. They went through to November 7th of the following year, 79. It might have gone on all the way until I left uh, NEW. And then, which was like in 82, and then I went to K-Rock in 85, and I remember receiving a couple of letters from them, you know, then, and people were always asking me about them, and what happened to T-Shirt and Razoo, and where are they? And I used to make up these these stories of, you know, they've retired to Montana where they're working on, on Frank Zappa's dental floss ranch, you know, some <laughs> weird stuff like that. And to this day, as I've said to you, I get queries about T-shirt and Razoo, but they sold, I don't know how many copies. We'll have to ask George Meredith next time we talk to them, but I know that... Uh, yeah, what, how, what was the... How, who... Who organized the book? Uh, well, there was this woman named Sandy Charon, who was a friend of mine who worked with Springsteen, actually. And she organized a lot of Springsteen's books and paraphernalia, things that were sold at concerts. And Sandy became a friend because she thought I was... I could write a novel, and she contacted me one day. She was basically an editor, publishing editor. That was her day job. And she had gotten in touch with me with the idea that I should write a, uh, a book. And her husband was a dentist. He became my dentist. His name was Harry Charing. And, uh, and, and we became friends. And I remember... I wrote a short story that was about a Springsteen-like character who uh, who dies at the beginning of the story, and it's the story's told through the eyes of his daughter, who um, is reminiscing about her father. And I thought, oh, Sandy's gonna love this because it's got all this rock and roll stuff in it, and the 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 rocker was very much a Springsteen kind of guy, right? Well, she hated it, and she never talked to me again about writing a book. I mean, we still remain remained friends, but she was like, "This is a terrible story. I don't know why you wrote this story, but this is no good." Obviously, blah blah blah. So that's who. Uh, that's who got together with George Meredith. And George, who always had a desire to be involved with books, he was a major book collector and a reader and, uh, uh, you know, hung out with a lot of uh, the New York Magazine people and stuff. Uh, he started a, a company called Daring Do Press. And this was, as far as I know, the one and only book they ever published. The Letters of Me and Razu Kelly was a, like a large size soft cover book with a year's worth of uh, letters. So George financed it. Yeah, George. But who 
how did you communicate with with oh i get it i get it i get it um you know what i mean yeah i don't i don't remember the details because i kept i kept out of it i i tried to not be involved in any activity that would alert me to who the author was but i think it oh, was so it's possible that george knows i'm pretty sure george knows yeah i'm pretty sure george knows who okay. wrote who wrote the letters um and i've had my my theories off and on about who it might be um but after a while, because it might be someone that you know. Yeah, it might be. It, it certainly could be somebody that I know. But I don't remember the specifics of how the book really came to be, because I didn't want to know about it. And I, I right. remember having so, so, okay. I remember having the conversation with George and Sandy, both of them, saying, "Look, I don't, I don't want to know. You can do whatever you want with this. And if the guy wants to, if it is a guy, if he wants to publish uh, the book, fine. But I don't want to have anything to do with it, you know, other than uh, <laughs> other than to write the the introduction, to explain it a little uh -huh. bit. Okay. So these these letters and reading these letters regularly on Sunday morning, uh with a that they had a theme song as i described it was a, like a little rascals kind of um theme music r crumb the cartoonist um put out music every once in a while he had a like a string band and he put out an album of uh uh these old um compositions for um uh, these radio serials about these young you know, these kids, uh, uh, I can't think of what the name of... The Little Rascals. The Little Rascals, yeah. Was that what I said before? Did I say Little Rascals? But it was the reading of these letters that were the... F when I started getting the kind of feedback that I got, I realized that I was reaching a broader audience than I imagined. And I think... The station began to realize that, too. Like, I was becoming... I was setting myself up as being different because I was doing these different mm -hmm. things. Like, I remember one Sunday morning, we were doing... We were going to be doing a live broadcast from Giant Stadium in the Meadowlands of some band. I I I want to say it was the Eagles, but I don't really know that for sure. That's just what what comes to mind. And John Sher was the promoter of the event, and John was the one you know producing the uh, uh, the radio aspect of it with one of our guys, with Richard Neer. So John is calling me up Sunday morning. He's out at the Meadowlands. People have already begun to gather. At, at, the, at the Meadowlands and um, he says you going to read Razoo this morning and I said yeah because he had been playing me on the PA all that morning uh -huh. while they're setting up for this concert right I said but yeah but, but take me off the PA when I do that because I'm going to be talking for a long time he says no man we're going to have we want to hear people want to hear the letter 
And I said, yeah, but no, John, come on. There's, there's thousands of people already in the stands there. I don't want to have the letter live on the, on the radio, on the PA system. And as if as if there weren't thousands of people listening. Yeah. Well, any, like you have this idea and I think you continue to have this idea for your entire career that no one was listening at all. You yeah. were just talking to yourself. <laughs> I love that you're like, no, I don't want thousands of people listening. <laughs> right. Like, there were already thousands of people listening. Yeah. But they were But you had they were faceless and not gathered. Yeah, they here they were yeah. gathered in one spot and they were gonna be forced right. to listen. And, sure, and they weren't choosing to. Yeah, it, you know, it's one thing to listen to music, like uh, on on the PA, but to listen to a guy doing this very idiosyncratic thing. And there were certainly going to yeah. be people there who didn't know me and didn't know what the letters were and what the voice was and who the characters were. Um, right. But John, John claimed that he put it on the PA. So I, I, I don't know. It's. It was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember being very upset about it. And yet <laughs> and yet tickled by it as well. You know, that Right. Because well, what happened at what happened at NEW, it's often been said that the NEW DJs from the late sixties through the seventies were rock stars. And it's it's kind of, you know, it's weird to say that, but I've had enough people say it to me that that was the perception, that we were, we were in some cases, considered to be as much a part of the music scene as the bands, as the musicians. Right. You know? Right. People, people related to us that way. And um, it, was a, it was a mass audience. And it's hard now, all these years later, with the the way radio has evolved, where nothing like this really exists much anymore in terms of reaching a mass audience. Um, it, it sounds a little absurd to say, oh, these, these DJs were rock stars. But when we went out on stage to to introduce a band, you know, and Scott Muni would bring all the DJs out and and the audience would roar for us like we were the opening act. Um, they treated us right. better than the opening act because at least they knew we were going to get on and off quickly. You know, they hated the opening acts. <laughs> they were there for the headliner. <laughs> they didn't want to see an opening yeah. act. You know? But you guys were personalities and you were allowed to be personalities. It's like the way you talk about how the audience developed this really personal relationship with Allison that was so evident because she was taking phone calls and she was talking to them one-on-one, -on -one. but, you know, from the way people talk about their relationship with you and listening to you, it's obvious that that was happening with you, that was happening with all of you, that there, because you were allowed to be yourselves and develop, you know, bring your whole personalities to what you were doing, then the people could find you. They were relating to you on that level. Yeah. And that's that's really interesting. I mean, I don't know what you'd even compare it to now, like weird YouTube stars or something. Mm. You know, it's like each one of you, I'm sure, you know, attracted your own weirdos who were like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, you know, I uh -huh. live in every week. That's, yeah. you know, he's, I, I relate to him. Yeah, and... and so it and... makes total sense to me that you guys 
were celebrities in that way because because you were allowed to be to bring your whole selves to what you were doing and to be big and fun and outrageous about it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that that scott was i mean and it also makes sense to me that scott was often even more outrageous than anyone else because he was setting the tone yes yeah i'm glad i'm glad that you that you understand that. I'm glad that you have a, a grasp of what I'm trying to communicate. Well, I mean, you guys had pinup calendars with all your, you know. Not pin, I mean, they weren't pinup calendars. So <laughs> they, I mean, the one, the one is a pinup calendar. <laughs> oh yeah, my Patty Smith cover. You your mean your Patty Smith cover? Yeah, we had these great calendars that we did where we'd recreate album covers or we'd. We'd pose in situations to illustrate lines, famous lines from songs, um, right? A bunch of stuff like, and those calendars, which raised money for something, muscular dystrophy or something, I forget what, what the charity was, which um, we also did a big concert every year around Christmas time, where we collect food and and um, toys, you know, for needy kids and stuff, and. You know, huge numbers of people would respond to these things, would buy the calendars, would come to the concert, would stand around the Christmas tree in the middle of Avery Fisher Hall's lobby and, uh, yeah. um, you know, talk to their friends, the DJs. I mean, it was it was a wild time. Right. It was a wonderful time. It really was. Do you hear you still hear from T-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> You no. think T-shirts still out there? Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're still out there because they there is a website. If you Google Razu Kelly, and I, that's K E L L E Y R A Z O O K E L L E Y. If you Google Razu Kelly or me and Razu Kelly, um, I think you'll find something out there. I think it was a guy who was a comic writer. Uh because that seems to be what what the other stuff that wound up on the website when they got into that internet fever thing, um, that yeah. seems to be the indication that they were, they may, the guy it may have been a stand up comedian or you know some kind of a writer of comedy, uh, uh, you know that's what it had to be, and and I've really done. And there is there is someone on Facebook who has a. There's a Razu Kelly Facebook yeah. person. Oh, is there on Facebook too? I th- I think so. Okay. That I think has maybe interacted with me or with posts that I think so. Yeah. Yeah. But who knows? I mean, yeah. I I um once I, I I read a couple of their letters, like I said, in the in the eighties on K Rock. And then I finally said, you know, it seems like the time has passed for this. It looked like no. it looked like they were struggling to to write the letters, and I was struggling to read them. And really, the time had passed. Yeah, you know, it was it was over. And and I said, so why don't we just like, you know, you guys have a good life, <laughs> and I'll have my life, and maybe we'll, wow. uh, you know, something will happen in the future. But to this day. There are two things that I still get constant feedback from people about all these years later. The one is Razu 
Razoo Kelly, T-shirt and Razoo, and the other is my being on the radio the night John Lennon died. Right. Maybe yeah. we'll talk about that next time. Okay. Yeah, we'll do that yeah. next time. Okay, sounds good. Okay, kid. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an, uh, another uh, attempt at uh, the Vin and Kate podcast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All and... we can do is make attempts. <laughs> <laughs> That's all any of us can do. All right. Thanks, baby. Take <laughs> Thanks, care. Dad. Okay. Bye. Bye.